This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey there, Science Rules listener. The episode you're about to hear features Gillian Jacobs and Diana Reasonover, who host one of Stitcher's other great shows. At the time, that show was called If Then. Recently, they changed their name to Periodic Talks. If you don't already subscribe, go look for it in your favorite podcast app after you're done listening to this episode, of course. That's Periodic Talks. Turn it up loud. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show, and if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. You can check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. I'm joined once again, yes, my friends, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey. Oh, hello, Bill. What a fine day for a podcast with new science leadership in this country taking the reins. Things feel good. But, you know, one happy revelation for me over the past four years has been discovering how many people from all kinds of other professions have a passion for science and who've really stepped up to help share the wonder of curiosity and discovery. And we have two of them on the show today, including an actor who I've long admired, uh, who is a fellow Pittsburgher, no less. A fellow Pittsburgher, yes, my friends. Uh, we have today, we have Gillian Jacobs and Deanna Reasonover. They are both actors. You probably know Gillian from the sitcom community and Deanna from NCIS. And uh, they are hosts of their own new podcast called If Then. Gillian Jacobs and Diana Reasonover, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Gillian and may I call you Diana? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Greetings. Right. Greetings. Greetings. You guys like science out in your life. And your podcast <laughs> is, uh, is If Then, which is a classic quote era demonstrandum sort of situation in uh, science. Bill, some people so, just say QED. Yeah, sure. Yeah, do. some people do. Yeah, yeah, some people definitely do. Gillian. You directed a documentary about Grace Hopper. 
Oh, yeah. So I directed a short documentary years ago about Grace Hopper, which was really the beginning of my interest in STEM STEAM. And um, as you both know, but listeners might not, she was uh, an important person in the early history of computing, starting with uh, her work on the Mark I computer at Harvard during World War II, and then um, her work on early computing languages and really helping to uh, establish what became the computing industry after the war. She came up with COBOL, right? The language. She, no, think. that is very contested. Uh, that is oh, a source... I, no, no, I never heard that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're Ooh. talking about. <laughs> so she she did um she did some work um, important work on compilers, and her work is part of the basis for what became the computing language COBOL. But she was not actually on the committee that created COBOL. And I know that because I interviewed another woman named Jean Samet, who actually was on the COBOL committee. And um, when she heard about my documentary, she made sure that I knew that uh, Grace Hopper did not invent COBOL. But, uh, Don't make her come over there. Yes. So tell everybody the name of the documentary. <laughs> oh, it's called The Queen of Code. And it, it really sparked this whole interest I have in um, STEAM. One of the fun tidbits that I know about Grace Hopper is that she's credited with at least popularizing the term computer bug mm-hmm. with a literal bug that that she found in her computer. That was yes, during World War II, they found I think a moth in the computer and they that was where the term bug came from in computing. That's that's why we have the old expression, it's not a moth, it's a feature. <laughs> yes. wait, wait. Diana Diana, you play a forensic scientist on NCIS. Yes, I get paid to do pretend science. How much science do you pick up playing that role? Um, uh, almost none. Hold on. Here's what's going on. So <laughs> when I am on the show, it's unbelievably fascinating, and I have very little idea of what I'm saying, because when you learn science, when you think about it, you learn the basics, and then you sort of scaffold your learning, right? And then if you work really hard, you get the privilege of doing a job where you get to apply the highest amount of science that you've learned. Um, I'm sort of doing this backwards, which is I am coming in and pretending to be someone who has done all this work and all this study um, and having to say these lines as if I know what they are. It's extremely fascinating to me, but uh, it's kind of like looking at the Twitter algorithm, you know, looking at the back end and then being like, oh, this is how I'm learning computer programming. It's just wild. It's backwards. But you enjoy it. Yes, I'm very interested in it. So what it's done is it's made me very interested, very curious, very much wanting to know more about actual science so that one day maybe I can look back on old episodes and be like, ah, yes, I finally get that scene. <laughs> well, here you go. That's that's exactly what I wanted to know is what brought the two of you together now doing this kind of podcast science exploration? You know, as I mentioned, I after doing the documentary about Grace Hopper, I've gotten to speak with people like Gene Samet, Megan Smith, all sorts of people in the world of STEAM. And I keep wanting to speak to more and more of them. And the more people I speak to, the more my curiosity grows. And so thankfully, Deanna has joined me in this journey where we're getting to now talk to all of these really incredible, brilliant people about their fields. And it's very wide-ranging and open-ended, which is really fun. So, you know, anything that falls within the STEAM world, we'll we'll be able to talk about. Yeah. And TV moves, you guys know, lightning fast. I mean, much too fast to actually be able to catch up on all this science in real time as scripts are coming out. So this podcast is kind of like my crash course in a lot of the science that I have missed. 
what's an example, uh, a most recent example of something you went, wow, what, the, what was that all about that I just said? <laughs> <laughs> Mine would be hyperbolic geometry. You, you okay, know what that okay, is okay. now. In, in what setting were you talking about hyperbolic geometry? I have to know. Yes. So I was speaking to Margaret Wertheim, who, with her um, twin sister, has this project called the Hyperbolic Crocheted Coral Reef, um, in which they crochet coral reef figures. And um, it's a project that talks about the intersection of hyperbolic geometry imaged through crochet uh, as well as addressing the uh, the uh, climate crisis, how it's affecting the Great Barrier Reef, and um, sort of bringing all of those things together with the people who are interested in crocheting as well. So um, Margaret was talking about how they how this connection was made between hyperbolic geometry and crochet, and so I really had to try and wrap my <laughs> what's head. What's the difference? Hang on, what's the difference between geometry and hyperbolic geometry and hyperbola? And what's the difference between that and crocheting? Because in my mind, they're all really the same thing. <laughs> okay, this is what I do remember. So they were having really a hard time imaging hyperbolic geometry, which sh she gives the example of um, uh, the way uh, the curly head of a lettuce, how the end of it, if you think of the end of a lettuce leaf, it's, you know, a curly figure. Um, and so they're having trouble imaging it, even on computer programming. And this woman who is uh, a steam person, a scientist, but also has an interest in crocheting, realized that the probably the best way to um, image it was through crochet. And so it became that there was this connection formed between hyperbolic geometry and crocheting. And um, because Margaret's twin sister is an artist and she is a science writer, they realized that they had this opportunity to bring that to a larger, wider audience by making the crocheting not of hyperbolic geometric forms, but of crochet of coral reef figures, and that this would attract a wider audience and also bring this notion of uh, the intersection of hyperbolic geometry and crocheting maybe to more people who are interested in crocheting who might not be aware of it. Right. In hyperbolic geometry, it just basically means that a lot of the geometric rules that we learned like in school, you know, like 2 pi r and like how to calculate the angles of a triangle, um, those apply a lot of the times to a flat surface, but not to these highly curved 3D surfaces. So they're just different rules, you know, like 180, like... um. Uh, a circle might not add up to 360, you know, degrees. It might just so be So the, the uh, included angle. So, so uh, here's what I think. Yeah. In regular Euclidean, named after uh, yes. Steve Wilson. <laughs> no, no, it's named after a guy named Euclid. <laughs> There's two rules. Parallel lines never touch. And uh, if you have an X shape... The angle at the top and the angle at the bottom are equal. The angle on the right and the angle on the left are equal. But in hyperbolic geometry, I think they just, they're not straight lines, they're hyperbole. And so you, you do all the same stuff mathematically, but the actual shape of things are literally hard to imagine where they exist outside of our everyday experience. But mathematically, like if you have some computer program where things are going to intersect or figures are going to be created, you can just add dimensions and just, you know, party on, man. <laughs> it's cool. No, it's cool because if our listeners just Google hyperbolic crochet, it makes a lot more sense when you see it. The, the, these sort of hyperbolic shapes, uh, they kind of a look saddle. like nothing. A saddle on it a looks, horse it's, it's, is it's a like classic a, It's a saddle example, shape. Yeah. 
you know, it looks mathematical, but you also immediately recognize it as the shape of kind of like the surfaces of those brain corals. It's, you know, it looks very oceanic as well as mathematical. So this connection that's at first blush seems kind of insane. makes a lot of sense <laughs> when you see it. <laughs> well, you all explained it very well. <laughs> well, it, it seems, you know what, I, I, and I know why, but when Margaret explained it, the idea that the way people learn math, the way people learned about, you know, science was not necessarily through a classroom when people are making these initial scientific discoveries. It's that you were kind of doing and learning as you went and that this is kind of an example of that. It's applying something in the real world to like a higher education level of mathematics. For our show, I'm learning alongside the audience about these uh, new concepts, uh, new areas of study. And so um, it's been really fun to push myself to have to explain hyperbolic geometry. I'm, my palms are sweating as I'm doing this. Oh, you, you should see the sweat pouring just out of my armpits. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. This is it's a family show. This, this so, is why it's a podcast. <laughs> this was not really the conic section show. But it's interesting that this person that, Gillian, that you became so interested in started with geometry, ignoring the idea that parallel lines never touch. Correct. Like, that's just so, I mean, you've seen train tracks. We all kind of know what a parallel line is. But imagine having geometry without that rule. It's like, dude, it's like so out there. Well, well I also, I, look, I, I appreciate just like this spirit of curiosity that the two of you have been describing. Yes. And is this like channeling your childhood? Is it like trying to tunnel back to the kind of curiosity that you had as kids? Were, were you science curious kids and you're trying to get back there? I think so. I mean, I think that's something that keeps coming up as we do recordings for this podcast is stories about ourselves as children, various tangents of interest that we had that we may have dropped. We, you know, neither one of us went on to major in a STEAM field, well, arts, but STEM in college. But yeah, it's it's sort of also um, when you're a kid, you just ask questions about the world and why things are the way they are. And so I guess I'm trying to get back to that as well. Yeah. And I have a I, I have almost um, an opposite story in that when I was in ninth grade, my school didn't have enough chairs in the ninth grade introduction to science class. So they put six of us randomly um, in advanced placement biology. Um, first day of <laughs> wow. high school. Yeah, it was it was wild. And I never caught up. Like I was just behind. How could you? Yeah. Oh, here's an enzyme. <laughs> what? Yeah. Welcome to the Krebs cycle. People. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Krebs exactly. cycle. Yeah. Exactly. And I, <laughs> I never caught up and it just, it made me feel like I would just never be good at science. And so, uh, I didn't ask questions because I was scared to because everybody was so ahead of me. So now that's why I'm like, I just got to be honest. I don't know what this is. Um, and I just ask questions now. And this show has allowed me to do that and to have a freedom that I didn't really have growing up. Stick around for more science rules after this. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. 
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Science Rules is back. So we are on the Science Rules podcast, hosted by Bill Nye and Corey S. Powell. But you guys... Deanna Reasonover and uh, Gillian Jacobs are going to ask us questions. It's Is a that takeover? Yes. Now Excellent. we're we're going to now bring you on to if then. Okay, yes. and if we don't know the answer, I promise I will say I don't know. <laughs> Yay! Right. Yay! The only rule. <laughs> so, Bill, you just got revealed uh, on the masked answer as the ice cube. How do we know yes. that it wasn't Corey under the mask? Uh, well, I don't know how you know, except I, I, the ice cube was as tall as I am. Oh, okay. Okay. And so I'll give you, you know, if, if as tall as Bill, then probably not Corey. Mm, I think good answer. It's it's hard to tell on the podcast, but there's a rather significant difference in the two of us in terms of stature. (laughs) In those terms. In terms of is a mathematical In in Re, the subject of height uh, or altitude above the floor, there is a significant discrepancy. But the expression in terms of comes from mathematics. You express Y in terms of X, for example. Didn't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Now, we do actually have so, we do have a real question. We're curious about what you have learned that really engages kids. Space and dinosaurs, everybody. Space and dinosaurs, not my idea. But it is, as I like to joke, a true fact. People of all ages are engaged by outer space and dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are monsters that were real. They have a whole... What's another thing? Deanna, what's everybody into? Forensics. Oh, 100%. Catch the pills. Yeah, right. What happened at this crime scene? Well, when you find ancient fossil bones... this creature must have existed. Like, dude, that is so out there. Dude, vicious teeth. And so uh, there are monsters that are under control. They're, they're not coming after you because they they're not around anymore. And then in space, space exploration, flying in space, who wants to be an astronaut, everybody, is they, it gets at these two deep, deep questions. Where did we all come from? Where did we all come from? And then are we alone? Are there aliens, uh, beings out there on some other planet orbiting some other star? And do they wonder if we are over here? These questions are so deep within us. Well, between the two of us, we covered that because Deanna went to space camp as a child and I had a deep interest in dinosaurs. Uh, So I think. Well, Well, you're like regular people. Yeah, that I mean, those are the those are the classics. I'm on Twitter a lot. That's sort of one of my outlets for trying to. Spread the joy of science, or especially cosmology. Especially, you know, kind of astronomy, space, cosmology. And one of the happiest things that happened to me yesterday is a woman who I know only kind of tangentially uh, was a, a science reporter. That's a mathematical thing. A tangent. <laughs> oh, yes. There we go. I remember that it's, one. It's happening all by itself. She tweeted at me last night. She said, you haven't sent out your kind of like cool space fact of the day. And I always read your space facts to my kids at bedtime. So I need, give me something to work with right now. 
Help and, a lady out. Oh, is what wow. you're I was saying. like, I was like, you know, you communicate out to the world. You don't really know where it goes. But the fact that somebody was kind of tucking in their kids with some cool bit of space discovery that I would send out each day, it just it made me very happy. You know, that just to know it at that personal level. That's awesome. At the Planetary Society, we have our weekly wow. We have our wow, and space is full of wows. My good. Well, science is full of wows. That's what makes us all go. And you know, it's easy to claim that our ancestors who were not fascinated by the world around them never got to be our ancestors. They, got, they died off or got killed or whatever the heck happened by the ancestors who were curious about the world around them. Mm. Well, that's something that we like to ask people too. What are things that inspire awe and wonder in you? Well, just even saying the word star, star, okay, you're telling me, that you got so much gravity, you have so much stuff that you crush together so hard that you fuse and glow white hot for billions of years, then yellow hot, then red hot for billions of years. And wait, there's more. Once in a while, the smushing of gravity is overcome by the energy being produced by the smushing that the thing explodes. And when it explodes, the atoms are smashed together with such smashtivity that they combine to form all the elements that we know. And then you and I are made of these elements from exploded stars. And we can understand that. <laughs> that flips me out, that we are made of stardust. And then we have somehow through the last pick a number, 100,000 years, gotten away from just trying to control fires to actually understanding where fires come from and then understanding that we are made of fire stuff. Like, whoa. Do you remember any particular moment uh, of that realization? Uh, it was when I was in college. A couple things happened. I had an outstanding physics teacher in high school. I will give us that. And he encouraged me to take the physics AP exam, this advanced placement, when it was like this new thing. Ooh, ooh. And so through a mistake, what must have been a mistake in the Cornell admissions department, I went to Cornell University and this guy shows up I had never heard of, Hans Bethe. And Hans Bethe, unlike many of us, had a Nobel Prize for discovering this process by which carbon becomes nitrogen, becomes oxygen, and the star explodes. He figures out how stars shine. Mm. Yeah. And he goes on about this, and he shows us this graph that he generated, or he and his co-authors generated, showing you could, he could predict the composition of the Earth's crust just sitting at his desk. And that, like, wow. And that's when, you know, I was quite old, uh, or I wasn't in elementary school when this realization was presented to me. But now, kids in elementary school are shown this, this hypothesis and the evidence for this. And it's really, it's got to be so inspiring to people who are, you know, 10 years old and stuff. It's just cool. I'll, I'll tell you something. In some ways, it's a much smaller and simpler kind of thing. It's an experiment that I saw demonstrated when I was a kid where you take a bowl of water and you sprinkle pepper on it and you take a bar of soap oh, and, put it, and oh, you yeah. put it in one side Classic. and all the pepper flies to the other side. And just look, I'm just seeing it, it's cool. And then the explanation is that 
every molecule of water is this sort of lopsided shape that kind of looks like, you know, like, like, like a stylized Mickey Mouse head. And because it's not symmetrical, there's like the mouse ears on one side and the head on the other side, they tend to line up with each other. And the soap disturbs the connection between the molecules and makes the all the molecules on one side kind of pull harder than the ones on the side with the soap. And so you're actually, this little thing where you're watching the pepper move, you're seeing atoms and molecules and you're seeing them move and you're seeing... It's freaky, you know, man. These, uh, these forces. <laughs> and you're like, like, oh my God, you're like atoms are not just this thing that people talk about, the story that we tell. They're real and they're moving and I'm doing it by just with this little piece with of soap. soap. And mm-hmm. that, I, I just had that sudden moment of that point where your brain flips from, oh, these are sort of like cool effects that I'm learning about the world to, oh my God, this is real. This is the act, the actual, the world is actually made out of atoms and it blew my mind. The other one that blew your mind that has since co-blown mine was you're talking about a magnet and a paperclip. Yes, I was going to bring that up. This was the other thing. This is uh, probably, you know, this is maybe, uh, maybe in, in college uh, when people are talking about the different forces of nature and the gravity, even though we think of it as the overwhelming force that c- controls our lives, gravity is the weakest of the of the natural forces. And at first, I think, how can that be true? And then my professor said, "Okay, you know, because there's everywhere. Earth is huge. Right, Earth Bowling is- balls fall on your head. It's right, bad. Right. So <laughs> gravity. Said, said, okay, take a toy magnet, and here's a paper clip, and you know, put it." You touch the magnet, the paper clip, and of course the magnet lifts up the paper clip. He says, now think about it. The entire Earth is pulling down on this paper clip. This whole Earth, One whole teeny planet. tiny toy magnet is pulling up on the paper clip. And that teeny tiny magnet is stronger than the entire Earth. It and wins. Like, oh, gravity is Dude. weak. Dude. Gravity's That's hardly doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> I should be able to fly. I should be able to <laughs> fly. Let me just concentrate. <laughs> yes. I, I I did a lot of that also. It never worked, but I'm still trying. You know, hot air balloons wouldn't go up without gravity pulling the air down. That also freaks me out. That is that's freaky. Huh. Gravity squeeze cold air squeezes warm air up. People say warm air rises because cold air squeezing it up. And people say heat rises. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Gotta have gravity. Got of gravity. A story that freaks me out. Much, you know, I'm of a certain age, people. Uh, I was a kid when the space program was invented and they were going to try to beat the Russians to the moon. And this guy, Fred Hayes, who was an astronaut on Apollo 13. Oh, Fred Hayes. That was the guy who Bill Paxton played in, a, in the movie. Apollo 13, notorious, amazing story. Guys go to the moon. Whoa, something shorted up. Whoa, electrical problem. Got to come home. Whoa, it's cold. The spacecraft has no heaters. We're trying to turn off all the electrical using appliances. No microwave, no toaster, no hair dryer. So Fred Hayes reported that he could keep warm on Apollo 13 coming back to Earth. He could keep warm if he held really still. Huh. So what would happen when you hold really still in zero gravity or virtually zero gravity, a layer of warm air would form around him and it wouldn't get squeezed off. It wouldn't rise away. It would just stay there like a blanket just without, I mean, how cool is that? Now, was that, that just to me is amazing. Was that warm air? Was that his own body heat? His own body heat. His own body heat just forms this kind of cocoon and it doesn't go anywhere. 
as long as you don't wave your arms or sneeze. Mm-hmm. Or whatever right. So they've do. also done experiments where like, like if you if you light a candle or if you, you burn a flame in, in zero G or in microgravity, uh, it just forms a little ball that burns just a little bit on the outside because the flame doesn't have anywhere to go and the heat doesn't go anywhere. It just forms this little blue ball. Bill, I know you wanted to be an astronaut at one point in your life. Sure. Do you still have the ambition to go to space? Well, if I got a ride, yeah, I'd do it in a moment. <laughs> no, seriously, you guys, I applied four times, you know, and I said, this is one of my favorite hilarious comedy jokes is modern people who become astronauts are like, dude. So, you know, <laughs> you're sitting there, the guy's got a clipboard. Uh, Deanna, how many PhDs do you have? Uh, I have none. <laughs> I have none, but I have a master's degree. A. 100 to 300 <laughs> B 300 to it's like what Gillian how many how many marathons have you run this month like who are these people that become astronauts they're just extraordinary overachieving maniacs more power to them and that's good but if I could get a ride man I'd go in a moment uh, as long as I can come back okay so we actually want to talk about um, some heroines in your family in steam uh, Bill we know your mom, she was a code breaker during World War II. Can you tell us about that? Well, I, all I can tell you is that she apparently was a code breaker. She's what people call the code girl. She was one of the code girls. She was recruited by the Navy. So this is something that I had nothing to do with, you guys. My mother was graduated from college in the spring of 1942. So World War II for the U.S. had started a month earlier or a few months earlier in, in Pearl Harbor a day that will live in infamy, 7 December. So uh, my mother was recruited because she was a good student. My grandfather, whom I never met, was an organic chemist, so I guess she was brought up with a tradition of science or something. And I will say objectively, my mother was very good at puzzles, crossword puzzles and... Rebus? Anagrams. She was good at anagrams. Rebus. Rebuses, yeah. She was good at all those sorts of puzzles. And I remember... She and my dad, at this point in our story, I was alive, which I wasn't in 1942. I remember them sitting around composing limericks. That was like a thing they did. And people would ask her, people of that age, uh, when the war was over, they would ask each other, what did you do during the war? That was how they started conversations. The way nowadays we'll say, you know, what do you do? Well, I'm an actress on this amazing, very popular NCIS show, for example. What do you do? Well, what did you do during the war, Jackie? And she would say, I can't talk about it. (laughs) She would laugh. She worked on what's called neutral shipping, where there were supposed to be rules of war and the German submarines weren't supposed to sink neutral ships. And the allies were not supposed to put war supplies on neutral ships, but it's war. And I got a feeling a lot went down that was uh, <laughs> that was not per the rules of killing each other and ending uh, ending lives uh, of people you've never met on a large scale. So was, was she part of the waves program? She was a wave. Yeah. yeah so was that was, Grace Hopper was a wave as well. She, she yeah yeah. So up. my yeah. mom was a little younger than Grace Hopper. Yes. By a little by ten years or so. I know Grace Hopper was already a professor of mathematics at Vassar when the war started. So, yeah. So anyway, this is something I had nothing to do with, but I was raised with the tradition of math and science. That's for sure. It's interesting you say that because you also mentioned that your mother was sort of raised with the tradition of math and science from your grandfather. And it's nice to see uh, how families 
can really encourage um, learning in STEAM and STEM. So I have her seventh grade chemistry test. Oh, wow. She got 100. She got a perfect score. And you guys, it's from a different era. Her handwriting oh, is so nice. Yes. It's like, wow. And then the other thing, not unrelated, her father, my grandfather, could blow glass. What? He was a chemist. Yeah. He was a chemist, and he he would make his own shapes to solve whatever, to make the mixture do whatever mixing it was going to do. And uh, it was something that guys of that age just had the opportunity to learn. And so my mother gave me some of his glassware to play with, these strange glass shapes that really weren't that fragile. Like he, he blew them thick enough to not break very much. And so that had a, I just thought it was just cool. And then I think about my niece and nephew who met in, gra- in chemical engineering grad school, the way you do, they can do this software called ChemDraw, which is, you know, must be derived of Grace Hopper's work, you know, 60, 70 years later. They design molecules, literally, you guys, over breakfast. Hmm. They're sitting there with their laptops eating a scone, but they can't blow glass. You know, and then I listened to the intro to your show, Deanna and Gillian, and you have this reference to graphing calculators. <laughs> I'm so old. How old are you? <laughs> you never had a graphing calculator. I didn't. Well, that was a new thing. When I was working at Boeing, you could get a computer that would do a graph for you. Did, did, you, did you have to era. sort of ma- manually pull the lever to add numbers? No, we had electricity. <laughs> but when I was in school, you guys, I had slide rules. You and did? A, yeah, yeah. I got. I have some beautiful slide rules. They're, they're great looking, beautiful things that can multiply and divide, take logarithms, sines, cosines, tangents, just to three digits. You can get 3.23, but you can't go any p- farther. And it doesn't tell you whether it's 3.23 or 32.3 or 3,230,000. you got to figure that out yourself. And yes, mistakes were made. <laughs> All right, Corey, we know that your wife is a physician and you helped her set up an outside office so she can see COVID positive patients. Um, can you tell us more about your wife and, and your family connections to STEM? Sure. So... I got to be, uh, I guess, a science enabler, uh, you know, a, a, a domestic support system. My wife started out working in a very kind of like a, a corporate medical setting. She was at a clinic affiliated with Beth Israel uh, in, here in New York City, where I am, and got very frustrated with the way corporate medicine worked and with just the assembly line approach to medicine. And she said, you know, this terrifies me, but I really, really want to get out of it and just create my own practice. And so she created really what's like an old style family doctor practice. She has a, she has an office in the neighborhood. She is a solo practitioner. I mean, she is the only person. There's no receptionist. There's no nurse. There's one person in the office and she's, she's it. Oh, wow. And and so, and so she, and she sees patients in the neighborhood. She's a, she's an old fashioned family doctor, which was great until COVID hit when all of a sudden, you know, not only was there no national plan or, you know, even really at first a coherent state level plan, but especially there was no plan for just like individual practitioners like that. What, you know, what, what limited planning there was, was mostly aimed at, you know, at large hospitals. And so she kind of made it up as she went along. And then, you know, and I helped her turn her outside courtyard into, uh, you know, into a place where she could see COVID positive patients. 
And we, we so we went through, we cleaned up the backyard, we set up a tent, uh, we figured out a, a sanitation scheme. It really was like like we were kind of inventing medicine while we were waiting for first for testing, and now we're uh, now she's waiting for vaccines to to show up. You know, it was a very very kind of hands on look at at the pandemic, and also just at at how medicine works in this country right now. On the one hand, you know, I'm I'm honored that I get to support this. It's also kind of kind of appalling at sort of how much she's out there on her own, and you know, sort of you know, it's just kind of how little institutional support there is. Are there ways that you guys are sort of um, incorporating your kids into your scientific learning and your scientific everyday lives? Well, I think so. For me, the family history that I've gone through is a fair bit different than Bill's in the sense my grandparents were all immigrants and they came here and they had almost like you know, traditional immigrant jobs. I mean, my my mother's mother ran a, a little general store. My father's father was a butcher. Then my parents were the first generation who went to college, went to university. And so the science background that I got really was from like this immigrant philosophy of like every generation should be lifted up above what the generation was before. But sort of science and technology didn't really happen until my generation in my family. And yeah, I think, you know, I, I feel a certain both pride and responsibility in how I'm raising my kids that, you know, there's sort of three generations of lifting up that brought me here. And yeah, I damn well better keep that going. And and especially when you look around right now and see how much the world needs it. I feel that, but I also feel, you know, a lot of pride that, you know, my mother who did not have any particular scientific background really encouraged my curiosity. And she was a stay-at-home mom. And she had this line that she would say, she's like, I'm not a housewife because I didn't marry a house, uh, you know. And yeah, you know, she was very, very proud that what she was was she was an educator and she was there to raise her kids. Corey, I never heard that. My mom was trying to save the world, working as a code breaker, a cryptographer, cryptologist. But she then raised three kids, and then she went back in the workforce. And I remember her resume said, "Manage twenty five thousand dollar plant." which was the mortgage on the house I grew up in, in Washington. <laughs> Managed, she was, I never heard the story about your mom didn't marry a house. That's pretty great. My mom would not be a housewife either. You know exactly how much you're worth because she had the, she had the dollar number. So you can, uh, you, can, you can actually give yourself a value. She got ripped off. Yeah. The, it's pretty the cool. creativity but, there, that's, that's actually wonderful. Science Rules will be right back. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. You're listening to Science Rules. Bill, Bill, do you hear that sizzling sound? I wondered what that sound was. Is that the sound of grilling? It is the sound of grilling, and that means it's time for our new segment, Grill Bill and Query Quarry. Grill Bill, it's got nothing to do with Quentin Tarantino. Uh, (laughs) This segment, we'll have famous people like Gillian and Deanna here uh, bring us their pressing science-related questions 
and we'll do our best to answer them. Bill? Uh, bring it on. Wow, I feel the pressure. I feel the heat. I feel the sizzle. Bill, name all the moons of Jupiter. Well, that's hard. There's 80, I think, now. Well, the, that's the why this is ones. Grill Bill. Uh, yeah, the four <laughs> big ones are, were discovered by Galileo using a, a, a telescope that I guess was used by military people, and nobody ever thought to look at the sky with it until Galileo. But anyway, uh, Callista, Ganymede, Io, and Europa. That's all you got? Well, those are the four Ooh. big ones that you can see with a pair of binoculars if you just steady your arm there, lean against a door or something. Okay. Then there's there's 78 more, man. I can't do them all. <laughs> Emily Lockdewalla from the planetary side could tell you all of them. <laughs> even, okay. even Emily couldn't do it. Corey, um, yep. does fire have a shadow? It does. I've seen it. The cool thing about fire is because it creates such a hot mass of air, and air has a refractive index, that if you shine a light through a fire, you actually will see the, the shimmering outline of a flame. So, yes. Fire has a shadow. Like a le- it's like a lens. Yes, oh. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh. You just need something brighter than the fire to cast the shadow of the fire. Ah, okay. Oh. Okay. Now I know. Cool. <laughs> Bill, are there, were there any dinosaurs that would have made good household pets? Uh, boy, I don't think so. In the same <laughs> way, uh, chickens don't make especially good household pets, but there must be. Of course, there must have been. And by the way, we do have dinosaurs as household pets. We have canaries and lovebirds and all those guys. And everybody is pretty satisfied right now that birds are part of the uh, clad or the biological grouping called dinosaura, right? Birds are dinosaurs. So next time you're, if you're not a vegetarian and you're enjoying a chicken, you're eating a dinosaur. Corey, I know that follicles generally determine hair shape. Like a more circular follicle that goes straight into the scalp, it generally means straighter hair. So why is my hair still curly so far away from the follicle? If, it, if you look at the hair up close, it's not a straight strand like spaghetti. Uh, it, it, there's actually this typically you know, a curve or a changing thickness or kind of a twist in the hair itself and the, the way it's extruded. And so basically, you know, your follicle is, isn't spitting out spaghetti it's spitting out fusilli and so it just kind of keeps it, you know that that curvature keeps going i'm sort of spitballing here but i have looked at a lot of hairs for mainly mainly because i have to clean the house but, but i've looked at a lot of hairs and you definitely can see the different different textures of different types of hairs both from different parts of your body and from different people uh some of them have the twist in them some of them are very straight some of them are thin and thick there's a there's a whole architecture of how the hair works as it's coming out of the follicle. Dumb follow-up question. Why does the weight of it not help straighten it out more? It's because, if you'll recall, gravity is very weak. So the, 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 just like, the, I mean, the, the chemical bonding in your hair, just like the mechanical twist in the hair, is so much stronger than the, the weight of the gravity pulling on it that it's the, the physical properties of the hair completely dominate. So, not changing the sub, but you have, if you have a ballpoint pen and you unscrew it and there's a little spring in there, the gravity's not enough to make the spring straighten out. True. So, and I you mean, your hair, out one's hair is not a wire, but it's got to be related. Bill, can we hear your Steve Martin impression? <laughs> Gee whiz. You know, I, he got to meet me one time. That's, <laughs> well, that's Gillian, joke, even right? I've never heard this, so I'm very excited about this question. <laughs> 
But just as such, as you may know, I'm just a huge admirer of him, and it's very reasonable that none of us would be sitting here talking without the Steve Martin lookalike contest in Seattle, which I won. You know, I wouldn't believe in anything if it wasn't for my lucky astrology mood watch. God, it's just a brilliant sentence. So he'll be going in his act at the height of his stand-up comedy powers. He would just remember when the world blew up? We all came to this planet on the giant space arc. Remember the government decided not to tell the stupid people because they were afraid that, uh, hmm. How are we doing on time? <laughs> Do you think that there are going to be any big innovations in aeronautics in the next decade? No, we're done. Okay. That's it. No, That's I'm kidding. So a couple things are going to happen. It's very reasonable that all this research with these enormous computers, thank you, Grace Hopper, <laughs> that are going to allow an organization to build a plane where it has a very, very small sonic boom, hmm. where the nose or the bow of the plane and the tail of the plane are going to make sonic booms. They always do, but they'll somehow figure out a way to make them destructively interfere with each other. Then the other thing I think is going to happen is SpaceX just going pedal to the metal or rocket fuel to the nozzle. They're going to make a, a, a rocket ship that can come and go from Earth's surface to Earth's surface, the mythic thing from London to Sydney. Yeah, point-to-point point point rocketry. Yeah, it's 10 years is pretty short, but 20 years, it will be, you, you'll be able to see it from here. Yeah. All right, But this thing, and the other thing, of course, we all dream of is renewable rocket, renewable yes. jet fuel. All right. Thank you so much for uh, <laughs> indulging all, all of my questions. Oh, you guys, you're so th nice. Th thank Listeners. you for indulging all of our answers. <laughs> yeah, God, on and on and on. Thank you, Gillian and Diana, for joining us today to talk about your work. Very excited about your new podcast. Our guests today have been Gillian Jacobs and Diana Reasonover. Fine actors, both they are. Their new podcast is called If Then. That's if slash then, which is like that's that's cause and effect. That's science. And you can find it wherever you listen to science rules. Remember, when it comes to understanding just about everything, science, science rules. rules. And if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. It helps us figure out what you want to listen to. So thank you. Be sure to look at all my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit your question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and this very same Corey S. Powell. We had help this week from Tomika Weatherspoon. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everybody, Science, Science Rules. Rules. Deanna Gillian, thank you so much. Be safe out there. Stitcher. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 
988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.